0: Well, I welcome you to be seated this evening. We're turning our attention to the Word of God at Romans chapter 11. We're doing this as we've been considering the subject of revival on Wednesday evenings. And the most that I can say for myself this evening is that I'm not ignorant. In verse 25, the apostle writes with the purpose that the brethren would not be ignorant. And so I'm, I praise the Lord that I'm not entirely in the dark about the things that God has revealed to us here. And I don't want you to be in the dark either. This is the will of God that you not be in the dark about these things. I can't claim more for myself, I can't claim that I've seen to the bottom of these things that I've searched them out to the extent that I would like to do. But nonetheless, it's part of my duty as well as my privilege as your pastor to open the subject that we have before us in Romans chapter 11. The subject tonight is uh, the promised future conversion of the Jews and the impact that God has said that this will have upon the whole world. And it has a connection to the subject of revival that we've been considering. And so here there is literally promised a revival in verse 15, that the receiving of the Jews will be life from the dead. So of all revivals that we should be praying for, This is a revival that is certain to happen, and we want to be learning to pray according to the will of God. We should pray most for the things that God has promised are sure to happen. And when we recognize that this revival, which is promised, will happen towards the end of the history of the world, every one of us has reason to store up both prayers and labors towards the end of seeing this happen. God has promised it, but God is a God of means. He uses the prayers and the labors of his people to bring about what he has promised. We should be willing to sacrifice and indeed to lay down our lives. And many missionaries have been launched into the world, even from our own Scottish uh, stream of church connection have been launched out in the confidence uh, that this will happen uh, before the world ends. In the course of history, that there will be a great efficacy given to the gospel and the Jews brought in and the nations of the world saved. And so this hope and certainty should ground us. We live in present circumstances. We look around us at the state of things spiritually. We see so much corruption within, obviously, but also much deadness and apathy in the world around us. We see comparatively that uh, conversions are few, that there's much labor uh, to bring about even a single conversion. And in such circumstances, it helps us to have promises. It helps us to see the horizon. It helps us to see where things are going. And if we invest by prayer and labor towards seeing these things happen, we have a promise also that he that sows and he that reaps shall rejoice together. So the reward will be equal. The joy will be equal, both for those who invest towards seeing these things happen and toward those that are there in the reaping time. So this is a certainty, this revival towards the end of the world. That God has promised in his word. That's one reason to consider it this evening. Another reason to consider this subject this evening is that we have a principle revealed, which I want to take uh, a few moments to unfold for you, a principle that has to do with how we interpret uh, prophecy. And so in within this chapter, in verse 27, in particular, let me draw your attention To verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now, this is quoting uh, from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is a well known passage which has to do with Jeremiah's promise, the Lord's promise through him, of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Romans eleven twenty seven is kind of a compression of this prophecy from Jeremiah where he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He says in the midst of these verses, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So Jeremiah says, I'll make a new covenant. And in those days, they'll all know me and I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So Paul gives us kind of a compressed summary of that prophecy. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now, when we take a step back, we recognize Paul is saying that Jeremiah's prophecy will be fulfilled when God converts the Jews and when all the nations of the earth are brought in unto the Lord. Is the prophecy of Jeremiah fulfilled and completed or is it not? Now, that's a tricky question that we need to to put on our thinking caps in order to answer this question. Because the same prophecy of Jeremiah 31, there's another passage in the New Testament that tells us it's fulfilled. That's Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 is saying, these are the days that Jeremiah was talking about. These are the days when God has made the new covenant with us. Have the last days of the new covenant, have they come upon us? In one sense... Absolutely, yes, they have. In another sense, Paul is saying he takes the same prophecy and he says this prophecy is a reason we know that there's something still awaited, namely the conversion of Jews in the course of history. That gives us a principle because we live in the days of the New Testament. We live in the days, the last days have come upon us. Christ has come. We live in the days... When the gospel will have widespread power, many will be brought to the knowledge of God. In the words of Jeremiah, they shall all know me. We live in days of greater gospel efficacy and the gospel spreading to all nations. That's, that has come upon us. But then there's another sense in which we're still waiting for particular fulfillments of that. We're waiting for days when the Spirit will be more abundantly poured out. So the New Testament is the age of the widespread knowledge of God amongst all the nations of the earth, but the way that God fulfills that is not with a static plateau, but rather this very passage of Romans 11 is saying there's more to be awaited. So it gives, it helps us understand the way that God works is through particular times when he pours out his Holy Spirit. It teaches us to Expect God to work in that way and especially to work in turning the Jews to himself later in the history of the world so for those two reasons we want to consider Romans 11 this evening because of the, the, the thing that it's telling us about that will surely happen the conversion of the Jews and also because it gives us a principle to understand that the way that God makes the knowledge of himself to abound is particularly through seasons where he pours out his spirit. Turning to our chapter, then we want to take in a bird's eye view of this chapter. At times there's benefit in considering with great particularity uh, one small, uh, even one verse of scripture and drawing out many applications from one verse. But this evening I want to give the big picture so that we can see, as it were, the, the The forest and not just see an individual tree. We'll consider four headings from this chapter. First will be the extent of Israel's fall. So walk with me then as we consider the unfolding argument that the apostle makes and as we give applications as we go. So first of all, the extent of Israel's fall. This is in verses 1 through 10, writing mainly to Gentiles in this letter, as he does, Paul is writing to those who might wonder, well, if Israel were God's chosen people, and if they've fallen, and if they're not experiencing the fulfillment of all the promises right now, then does this mean that God's promise fails? Is God not faithful? Is God the kind of God who casts away his people? And the answer is, God forbid, certainly not. How do we know that God does not cast away his people whom he foreknew? Well, the first answer that's given in these first 10 verses is that it's not total. It's not complete. It's not that all the Jews have been cast away. Exhibit A is that Paul himself is a believer. Here he stands... Having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is a saved man of the seed of Israel. Isn't that so interesting that Paul strikes this personal note? We ought all to be doing that when we're considering the great sweep of history and the many people that uh, God will save through the course of history. Each one of us ought to be looking in the mirror. So children... This evening, we're talking about the big picture. God will save multitudes of people through the course of history. But what about you? Can you speak the, in the way that Paul spoke? Can you say, I, I have experienced the saving grace of God. And oh, that each one of us might be able to say that this evening. And so Paul is one example of a Jew who's saved and then we have the illustration from the life of Elijah. Elijah didn't uh, was unaware that there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee unto Baal. And in the same way, we can be guilty of this and failing to recognize how many people the Lord has, how many servants he has. There is a reality to the fact that blindness has happened unto Israel, God, has fulfilled the very threatenings of his word. For instance, through Isaiah, who was told that the people would be seeing but not understanding the prophecies of David in Psalm 69 have been fulfilled upon the Jewish people that rejected their Messiah. Their table has been made a snare and a trap. Spiritual blindness has come upon them as well as many national disasters. And so this is, we recognize that these things have happened, but nonetheless, it hasn't been total. Not all Israel has been cast away. Isn't it wonderful to see that the grace of God has staying power, has sticking power? Notice that Paul, in the midst of these things, he's beginning to talk about election there in verse five. There is a remnant according to, to the election of grace. And so we maybe at some time we hear a dramatic story which is filled with sadness. We might hear about a, a ship that capsizes and we hear stories of immigrants and the ship capsizes and hundreds of people perish. But there are some who are saved out of the midst of all of that death. And that happened by the decree of God that these people and this ship were saved. Well, the same is true on a spiritual level, that here where Israel's ship has sunk, yet the loss is not total. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what is election? After all, in a political election, people choose their ruler. And when we're speaking in the Bible of election then we're speaking about the fact that God has chosen a people to be his and it's called the election of grace now what could be clearer than this it is not an election of works but of grace notice how verse 6 contrasts grace and works why did God choose whom he chose only out of his free grace He did not choose people because of works that they had done or would do. Notice that he makes an absolute contrast between grace and works. It's not a contrast between grace and works performed in the past alone, but it's a contrast between grace and works of any kind, whether past, present, or future. So to say that God, well, God electing, that really means that he chose people because he foresaw what they would do. This will not stand. The word of God cuts this idea down. Then it would not be an election of grace at all. So do you see the principle that we're learning here? That God, from eternity, without any condition in the ones that he chose, without anything that they would do, As a basis whatsoever, but only out of his own purpose of love and grace, he chose a people to be saved. And those whom God chooses to be saved are surely and certainly saved. And so uh, all the world could try to uh, hinder the salvation of God's elect, but it will not be able to do so. These elect ones, in the case of Israel, in the case of Paul and others like him, They were in a nation that by and large, to a great extent, was underneath of God's judgment and was was falling and stumbling. But where God has elected, that election stands no matter what. What a thrilling thing it is to see that the grace of God has a holy stubbornness to it, that it will not let go of those upon whom it fixes. So then the extent of Israel's fall is the first thing that we learn. Verses 1 to 10, that it was not a total fall. Secondly, we learn about the purpose of Israel's fall in verses 11 through 15. This answers the question, why? Not the question, to what extent or how many of Israel, but why did Israel fall? Verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall it might seem like the answer is obvious children that if you stumble you you stumble that you will fall that you expect the outcome of stumbling to be you falling upon the ground and skinning your knee but in the way that God works there's a very unexpected result God forbid No, the stumbling of Israel will not lead unto their fall, but rather it will lead unto conversion. It will actually lead unto a double conversion. Israel has stumbled. And now, children, how did the gospel of God go forward? Well, it was preached, first of all, in Jerusalem. It was preached... At Pentecost and afterwards to the Jerusalem sinners, the ones that were directly guilty of uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was preached to them, but then it went forth from Jerusalem unto Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so because of Israel's fall, now the gospel has come unto us. It's preached unto all the nations. Paul, he would go to the synagogue and when he was rejected in the synagogue, he would shake the dust from his feet and he would go and bring the gospel unto the Gentiles. So through Israel's fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. But that's not all, is it? Because there's another purpose be even behind that, that now the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But even that is for the purpose of provoking Jealousy. We see that word jealousy in verse 11. It's interesting that God uses many motives in His Word to bring us unto our Lord Jesus Christ. And jealousy can be one of them. Jealousy, we usually think of as a sinful thing. We think of Someone else has something, and we want that, and we don't rest content until we go and obtain that thing, and we come onto an equal footing with other people who have something that we want. And God has forbidden us in his word to be covetous of what other people have, hasn't he? But then on a spiritual level, actually, jealousy can work in a way that is good. So if we see other people obtaining the good things of the gospel, when we see them tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, when we see sinners coming unto Christ and finding in him reconciliation with God and rest and peace for their souls, this should stir us up to say I want that too. It can work with perhaps even siblings. You can see your your siblings drawing near to the Lord and you should, in a sense, have a holy jealousy. I want to be draw near to the Lord as my sibling is doing. Well, that also is at work in God's purposes regarding Jews and Gentiles. And actually, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness So after the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the Jews will be provoked to jealousy. They will also want to have the Messiah and they will come in in great number. And this will be as life from the dead. Verse 15. It doesn't say in verse 15, the resurrection of the dead, because That would be the normal way that the New Testament would describe the resurrection at the last day, would be with that word resurrection. But here we have a different phrase that is used. Life from the dead, a great revival will result from the Jews beholding the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Now all of that has an impact upon us this evening. It has an impact upon me as a minister, because Paul says that he magnifies, or literally that he glorifies his office. It's a glorious thing to preach and offer a free salvation in Christ unto sinners. And Paul says he's giving as high of a place to that as he can. He's exhibiting and showing as far and wide as he can that it's a glorious thing for the gospel, for him to be preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And then for yourselves, what can you do actually to affect the course of world history. By receiving eagerly and greedily, if we can't say that, the gospel, then you can provoke the Jews unto jealousy, unto emulation. If you glory and boast in Jesus Christ and say, oh, what a wonderful thing we've been given, the son of Abraham and the son of David. The Savior has been given to us. What a prize we have. We found the pearl of great price. If you receive the gospel in this way, then you can become a means whereby the Jews are provoked to say we want that too and to come in unto Jesus Christ. It matters then what you do with this gospel that is set before you. That shows us something about the purpose of Israel's fall. Thirdly, we see the illustration of Israel's fall from verses 16 through 24. Here we have an extended illustration. We have a series of illustrations, actually. When there's an illustration from the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which had to do with the bringing in of the first fruits. And if the first fruit was accepted by God, then the whole harvest would be accepted by Him as well. We have an illustration about a tree and I haven't done much myself with tending to any kind of orchard or anything but I understand that with apple trees there's often a rootstock there's one kind of apple tree on that provides the basis and the foundation of the tree and then there's another kind of apple tree that's grafted onto the rootstock for whatever reason this is done for the health and fruitfulness of the tree we have an illustration that's like that here with the breaking off of some branches and the grafting in of others. Israel is described as the natural root of the olive tree, the Gentiles as the branches of a wild olive tree. It's a double mercy for us as Gentiles that we've heard the gospel at all, that we have been taken off from our natural wild olive tree and and brought in unto this rich olive tree that God has been blessing through history. The The lesson for us is that we should behold something about God himself. Verse 22, we should behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. In God's dealings with people, with Jews and Gentiles, we need to behold God Himself. We need to behold in those that He brings in His goodness. Oh what a good God we serve. Isn't it, is it not amazing that He would save anyone at all? We should behold In those that he cuts off who reject the gospel and who are removed from the circle of blessing we should behold the severity of God we should think what a holy God he is he doesn't owe salvation to any man as if he were a debtor we should behold God himself and we are told that we should stand in fear we should be thinking to ourselves let us not boast but let us rather see that all that we have is the gift of the free grace of God let us not neglect so great salvation which has been preached to us the illustration of Israel's fall then is here in verses 16 through 24 and the mystery of Israel's falls is our fourth heading the mystery of Israel's fall I began I referring to this as we opened this evening. This is a mystery, a secret. This is a piece of God's wisdom that we would not know unless God had revealed it to us. This whole matter is meant to make us go low and to put God high. It's revealed so that we won't be wise in our own conceits. That is that we won't think of ourselves as being as being wise the course of history then is that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the gentiles should be come in so this blindness that's now upon Israel it has an end date it has an expiration and so when a multitude or fullness of gentiles comes in then all Israel shall be saved. Think about those words and write them down in your memory. And so all Israel shall be saved. If we were to say, well, if we were to try to spiritualize the word Israel in verse 26, we would be destroying the distinction that we've seen throughout the whole chapter. This chapter is clearly intended to tell us about God's dealings as it relates to the physical descendants of Abraham and then the Gentiles who are not descendants of Abraham. Verse 1 clearly makes that distinction between the seed of Abraham. Paul was of the seed of Abraham. Others were not. If we were to say, well, the whole chapter has been dealing with Israel in contrast to the Gentiles, and then we were to come all the way down to verse 26, and we were to say, well, Israel no longer means the physical descendants of Israel. We'd be destroying the meaning of the whole chapter. It's true that Israel, that that term can have spiritual applications. We can truly say of someone who's not descended of Abraham, but he has the faith of Abraham, we could call him an Israelite indeed. It's a true concept, but I'm saying that in verse 26, the context establishes the meaning of the word, and God is here giving us a prophecy that all Israel Shall be saved. So now, in the former part of the passage, we have some absolute uh, statements. Uh, we have it, it's being said that Israel has fallen. Now, has all has every last individual in Israel fallen? No, because there's a remnant chosen by grace. So then, in verse twenty-six when it says that all Israel shall be saved, are we saying that at a certain point of history, there won't be any such thing as an unsaved Israelite, an unbelieving Jew? No, we're not saying that, but we are saying that a great abundance, the overwhelming majority and great multitude of Israel, the physical descendants of, of Abraham shall be saved. How do we know that that will happen? Because there are prophecies that it shall happen. The next words are a combination of a quote from Isaiah 59 as, and also a combination with the last words of Psalm 14. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer. Isaiah says that the deliverer will come to Zion, but the deliverer who shall come to Zion is the deliverer who came out of Zion, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's descended from Israel according to the flesh. Surely then there's a hope and a future for the physical descendants of Abraham, because Jesus, according to the flesh, came from them. All of this should make us to stand in awe of God, a God who has, like we saw, severity towards those who do not believe, but he has mercy upon mercy. Think about how that shows us something about the character of God, his merciful character. Mercy has the last word in the course of history. The general trajectory of things is not, well, there was this brief window where God was merciful, but then that was all over, and fewer and fewer started, people started to be saved. Rather, the opposite is true. As history progresses, it's revealed that God's purpose in handing people over to unbelief was in order to have mercy upon more. Verse 30, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. What a God we serve. Because even in his most severe works of handing people over to unbelief, handing them over unto hardness of heart, even where he does that, and he has every right to do that because he's the potter, we're the clay, we can't argue against him, he has sovereignty, and we need to bow before him and not argue with him. All of that is true, but yet even where he's operating in his absolute sovereignty and he's handing people over to unbelief, yet he has a purpose of mercy in view for doing so. This should be reverberating in the chambers of our heart this evening to recognize this, that, that God is a God of mercy, that he delights in showing mercy, that he is slow to wrath, as it were, that his wrath has, if it were a gun firing off, it has a rusty trigger that's hard to pull, and it takes many, it takes a lot of straining to get that um, to fire off in in wrath, but the Lord's mercy is freely flowing and abundant. Ought we not to come unto such a God and bind ourselves unto him and walk before him? This is his purpose for history. Mercy has the has the last word, and This leads us to the adoration of God in the closing words of uh, the chapter. God is merciful towards sinners and why is he so merciful? Well, he's to be adored. This is the last thing is the adoration of God who gives because he gives, who has mercy because he has mercy. Well, then we have This evening, great things that we're dealing with, which are past our feeble comprehensions, which I have by no means searched into the way that I want to, but yet we are forbidden by Scripture to remain ignorant of the things that we've seen. They have a practical impact upon us. God is saving many souls. He will do so through history. And therefore, we ought to labor and pray for the conversion of nations and confidence that God will bring the fruit. He showed us the horizon. He showed us the end of things. Let's be careful to receive the gospel ourselves and to pray that he accomplish what he says here in his word. Amen, and may the Lord bless those things to us.